The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. At the beginning of the book, a series of unfortunate events. The author warns his reader, if you're looking for a story that is a full of happy little elves and a story that ends in, uh, in smiles and rainbows, don't read this book. It's a warning that I feel like maybe I should offer you today because we are going to spend uh, today's uh, study looking at the book of Job, which could also be renamed a series of unfortunate events. Um, it's a book that is challenging and mysterious, possibly the oldest of all the books of the Bible, it is full of uh, these huge uh, human problems and these big questions about God and the nature of faith and suffering and, and all these things. Um, but it is a book of the Bible that demands that we um, give it our attention because there's something that connects us with the book of Job, no matter uh, where we come from or what era we live in or uh, what our personal experience has been, because the book of Job is a book about a man who suffers and doesn't understand why. And I think every single person in this room can relate to suffering. Now, when it comes to suffering, there was no greater event in the 20th century that epitomizes the suffering of people like the Holocaust. See, I told you. I was going to not start off with happy elves. The Holocaust is, is also known as the Shoah or the catastrophe and the Holocaust, as you know, was the uh, epitome of evil events happening and, and of death and of, and of unnecessary carnage. And it's just the most horrible event in the 20th century. It shook the human psyche to its core and it rocked the foundations of many people's Judeo-Christian faith. And it brought about many questions. How could a good God let so many innocent people suffer such evil? How do we make sense of a world where things like this can happen? And what is the role of those of us who are the neighbor or the friend of the suffering? How do we react to those who have gone through such tragedy? In trying to make sense of the Holocaust, um, the author Elie Wiesel, who won the 1986 Nobel Peace Prize, wrote this as he was contemplating uh, this idea of peace and the suffering he had experienced. He said, Job, Job our ancestor, Job our contemporary, his ordeal concerns all of humanity. He demonstrated that faith is essential to rebellion and that hope is possible beyond despair. The source of his hope was memory, and it must be ours. Because I remember, I despair. Because I remember, I have the duty to reject despair. This from a survivor of the Auschwitz death camp. It's interesting to note also that uh, Mr. Wiesel said after... Um, World War II, no matter where you went in Europe, there were Job's on every road. Think of that. Job's on every road. Men and women who had suffered and didn't understand their suffering. Well, uh, Elie Wiesel was not the only great writer or thinker to, to wrestle with Job as, as I was preparing for this week's sermon, which is, I have to admit, probably the most difficult I've ever prepared for. I came across uh, ideas related to Job and people trying to understand Job from both 
Christian, Jewish, and secular thinkers, names that you will definitely recognize from Voltaire to Geoffrey Chaucer to Franz Kafka and Carl Jung and even Søren Kierkegaard. From the Christian and Jewish side of things, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and John Milton and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin and the English artist William Blake. All of these men and women have tried to understand the book of Job. And so if you feel confused or you feel uh, intimidated by the story of Job or if there's questions that you don't seem uh, are resolved properly, you're in good company. Because this is a book of the Bible that has acted as both a challenge and an encouragement to people for almost 3,000 years. We know that the prophet Ezekiel, when he was writing during the Babylonian exile, he had access to the story of Job and used it as a reference, which means that even during that time, Job was being used to teach people how to engage in a conversation about what it means to suffer and to love God despite our current situation. So we add ourselves to this list today. Are we ready? We're going to dive in, okay? Now, I mentioned to you um, that Job was a complicated book, and I just want to say a few things about what we can and can't do in one sermon. You know, honestly, the book of Job deserves probably uh, a whole sermon series that's 10 or 12 parts, but I didn't get assigned that. I got assigned 30 minutes. So uh, what I'm not going to be able to do today is to go verse by verse or even chapter by chapter through the 42 books of Job and explain uh, and try to open up all of the questions that are there. We can't do that today. Um, but what we can do is we can take a big 30,000-foot view of the story of Job. I'm going to try to do that in a creative way for you today because many of you probably know the basic parts of the story. Um, but today we're going to try to look at the big picture and we're going to look for three questions that I think uh, exist in the book of Job and also affect your life today and my life today. And here's what I think those are. One, what is the role of Satan in bringing about evil or catastrophe in the world? Two, what are the rules of God's divine justice? What does it mean to say God is just and good, even though so many evil things happen? And lastly, what is the role uh, that, that people um, fill in comforting their friends in times of need? So, no big deal, really easy stuff, right? We're going to try to use Job as a starting place for these answers, but hear this. We're not going to be able to uh, answer these questions in a complete way. I hope that you leave here today with more questions than when you arrived. And that I hope you seek out answers for these questions in the scriptures and in godly counsel and from the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for this book of Job that we can look at your holy scripture and we can find comfort, and we can find wisdom, and we can find understanding um, from your servant Job. We ask that you would uh, encourage us through your word today. Amen. Now, there's a lot of, uh, as I said, mystery around the book of Job. I'm not going to give you a whole seminary lesson on that, but I will say this about it. Um, the um, book of Job has basically two main parts. It has prose at the beginning and end, which means just normal narrative where it says this is what happened. And then the middle section is all these very um, detailed poetic dialogues 
And as we get into the story of Job, you'll see that these dialogues are a little bit like um, a court case. So if you're watching Law and Order on TV and one lawyer gets up and states a case and then sits down and then the other lawyer gets up and states a case, this goes on for like 38 chapters in Job between Job, his friends, a mysterious man named Elihu, and also God. So there's an element to this, uh, this book that is uh, almost like a courtroom. And uh, it's at first Job that's on trial, and then it seems that God goes on trial, and then in the end, uh, Job goes on trial again in, in, a, in an interesting twist at the end of the story. So just know that when you read the book of Job, uh, you will probably be a bit confused. I think that's normal for us as we read uh, this very complex story, but uh, the essence of the action takes place at the beginning and the end, and the middle is the long uh, monologues between uh, Job and his friends. Now, the book of Job starts out by stating that it's taking place in a place called the land of Uz. And we don't actually know where Uz is, but uh, the uh, idea would be that it's, or the, uh, the understanding is that it's probably in northern Arabia. It's not uh, probably taking place in the land of Israel, but instead in a place uh, that would have been outside, which also explains why Job and his friends don't necessarily have Hebrew names because these people would have been, uh, their, their narrative was taking place outside of the land of Israel. Now, the book of Job as a book in the Bible, as we know, was, uh, came to us from the Jewish tradition and was probably compiled by a few different authors, but many people believe that Moses was the author of Job. It doesn't affect the story that much. It doesn't affect the lessons that much, but it's interesting to note that, as I said, Job, as revered as it is, is shrouded in some interesting mystery. So, Let's begin by looking at the story of Job. Now, I said I was going to try to do this in a creative way, and Kudzai is going to help me. And uh, I mentioned to you earlier the English artist William Blake, who lived in the early 19th century. And William Blake was fascinated by the book of Job, and he was uh, very much interested in telling the story of Job visually. And so lucky for us, he narrated the entire story of Job through illustrations. So if you're a fan of graphic novels or of comic books or of illustrative drawing, William Blake was one of the early masters of this, and they produced this book called Illustrations of the Book of Job, which was a huge success that he never really got to experience in his life, but I'm going to use these visuals to walk you through the basic part of the story uh, today. So Kudzai, are we ready? Let's go for number one. The story of Job begins like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. We learn from the first chapter of Job that he's a righteous man, that he has this wonderful family and this estate and all this wealth, and we also learn in chapter 1 that he loved his children so much that because he didn't know about their own um, position with God, he didn't know about their own hearts, that he made extra sacrifices every week on behalf of his children so that their sins would be covered by the blood of a sacrificial animal. He cared so much about his children that he made sure to do that uh, for them so that their sins would be covered. Um, and so here we see Job with his family. In the next image, we can see something that really is the start of the drama of the story of Job. It is the um, scene where God is having a conversation with Satan. And Satan here uh, is the word that means the accuser. 
He's also called this, one of the sons of God or the angels. Um, and uh, Satan comes to God and says, Job only is righteous and only is obedient to you because of all the stuff that he has. And this is what um, God says to him. He says this, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from his presence of the Lord to destroy Job. And here in the image you can see, it's a a little bit small, but you can see that uh, Job and his family are below, uh, God is above, and Satan is petitioning him saying, I bet I can get Job to denounce you. I dare you, in a sense, to, uh, to take away all the wealth that Job has because when that goes away, Job won't care about you at all. Next, we will see what happens when Job loses everything that he has. First, Satan strikes Job's uh, livestock and his servants, uh, and then he gets this shocking message from a messenger. He says, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job arose, uh, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Can you imagine? It's one thing to lose your house and your property, but to lose all ten children at the hand of 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 nature, as Job would have seen it happening, the wind that knocked the house down. But we know from the narrative that God is at work here, and Satan is at work here, and it looks very odd to us from our perspective. And Job is filled with a great loss. Next, after this has happened, we meet these three characters who in the Bible are referred to as Job's friends. And their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So if you're looking for baby names, don't look in Job, okay? Here, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go back one, Kudzai, if you can. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Go ahead. Job's friends come to him, and they try to comfort him, but they don't know what to say. And I'm sorry, I skipped something here. In this image, you can see Satan actually afflicting Job's body because... um, After Job did not curse the Lord, Satan said, yes, he didn't curse you now, but what if you take away his health? And so the Lord says this. He says, stretch out out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. That's Satan talking. And then the Lord says, behold, he is in your hand, only you cannot kill him. So here we see Satan striking Job's body with boils from his head to his feet. Job's wife, Job's wife speaks up and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? You should curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women when you speak like that. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So next we meet the three friends with the wonderful names. For seven days and nights, they didn't speak to Job. They just sat with him and tried to comfort him and find out how do we care for our friend. But eventually... They begin to question why Job has these horrible things happening to him. What could possibly cause God or nature uh, or faith to strike down his family and take away his wealth and cover his body with these sicknesses? And, um, And that question is going to be the central question 
of the book. In the next picture, we can see here that Job has fallen into complete despair. His hands up to God, he's saying, I don't know uh, what the reason is why, but he says these shocking words in chapter 3. He says, uh, Job opened his mouth and he said, let the day perish on which I was born and on the night that was said, a man is conceived. Job says, it would have been better if I had never been born. He's in complete and utter despair. Well, next, uh, the friends who were once silent, they begin to speak. And uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, brought a problem to a friend and they they weren't especially helpful and they've made the problem problem worse. Uh, That is the uh, situation with the the three friends of Job. Um, And this is what begins this long trial that I mentioned to you where the friends begin spouting off all these reasons. Well, perhaps it's because you, uh, you didn't help a stranger once or perhaps it's because you cursed God in your heart. Or perhaps it's because, and perhaps it's because, and this goes on and on. You can see the, the friends there pointing their fingers. And you know it's rude to point with one hand, but did you know it's uh, extra rude to point with two? I think uh, they're all friends are really kind of blaming Job, and, and, and his wife doesn't seem especially supportive. And, and uh, you know, she's already said, curse God and, and just die. It would be better for you. And so we can see now that the, the high drama of the story continues as uh, these friends go on and on about this, this theological, all these theological reasons why Job has sinned in his heart. And, and, and yet, as a reader, we know from chapter 1 that, that, that Job was righteous. And so Job is very much stuck in this position where he knows that he's innocent, yet everyone in his life is telling him how guilty he is. And by all accounts of the things that have happened to him, that's the case. So, next, there's a new voice that is uh, brought into the story, and that is the mysterious man, young man named Elihu. Now, we don't hear about him until late in the book in chapter uh, 32, and Elihu finally is in the background. He was a neighbor or someone from a distance who finally says, enough is enough. Guys, this has been going on for a, a long, long time, and, and you all are at this point talking in complete circles. And not only are you talking in circles... But you've, in, along the way, you've begun to speak against God in ways that you probably didn't mean to, but now you're all basically uh, confused, and, uh, and you're putting God on trial, and, and, and it's got to stop. And so Elihu uh, has this really uh, dramatic speech where he starts questioning their motives, and he starts saying, you know, what do you know about nature and the stars and the lightning and the mountains and the seas and the beasts and all these things? And he sort of starts to humble these men, which would have been unusual because he was younger than they were. Um, and he basically um, returns the conversation to how great God is, despite Job's situation. Well, throughout this whole time, with the friends and Elihu and his wife, Job has been asking God for a trial of his own, saying, meet me and explain to me what's going on. Can you not show me my faults? Can I not uh, uh, protest my case in front of you? God, uh, Job is sort of asking for his chance to, to, to come before God and, and display his righteousness. And, and, uh, and as, as happens so often in life, sometimes we uh, don't, uh, when we ask for something, we don't realize what we're going to get. And here's what happens next. God appears to Job, the scripture says, out of the whirlwind or out of a storm. And if you've ever, um, if you've ever heard a child talk back to their parents and not know what they were talking about, and then the parent sort of turns on them and says, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about, uh, imagine that uh, to the nth degree as God comes to Job from the storm, giving him the audience he's been asking for, 
and begins asking him a, a series of questions that Job has no answer to. The Lord brings his own questions to the trial. He says, who is this? This is his opening line to Job. Who is this in the darkness, in the dark counsel of words, who's been, sorry, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then God says this to Job, dress like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. So God has turned all of these questions that Job and his friends have had back onto Job. He says, fine, I have some questions for you. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. And for the next several chapters, in more than 70 questions, none of which Job can answer, God interrogates Job regarding numerous aspects of creation. Though Job was dumbfounded by this barrage of questions, he fails the quiz, he fails to answer, he did get to meet God face to face as he asked. And this reassured Job that God had not fully abandoned him. The next image I just had to include from Blake's illustrations because I think it's the coolest one. This is a portion of the illustration where God mentions the Leviathan and Behemoth. And uh, that's the way that the English language Bible uses uh, those words. And, and, and we don't exactly know which creatures God is referring to when he says he created uh, Goliath and Behemoth. But listen to what he says about Behemoth. That's the one that looks kind of like a rhinoceros. He says, Behold behemoth, which I made as I have made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, the power of the muscles in his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron, for he is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. God is saying, did you make him, Job? Did you make behemoth, this great uh, creature of the earth? Did you bring, if so, come forward. For the mountains yield food for him where all the beasts play. Now some have hypothesized that God is referring to, to ancient creatures that are now extinct, possibly dinosaurs. Um, perhaps it's the great crocodiles and rhinoceroses and elephants of the earth. We don't know exactly, but we can get a feeling a little bit for what Job must be feeling as God is asking these very pointed questions. Where were you, Job, when I created the earth and all of its great creatures? We can feel a little bit of that pressure that God is putting on Job. The next picture is Job's vision. In chapter 42, Job has an epiphany. He finally realizes the fault of his questions was that he uh, had heard so much about God, but he had never uh, really allowed himself to see the expanse of God's greatness. In this uh, picture that uh, Blake has illustrated, uh, <clears throat> it's called Job's vision. And this is what Job says back to God. Finally, when he finds the strength to respond, he says, I had only heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in ashes and in dust. So God lays out all of his great works and appears to Job and questions him without answering any of Job's questions, which is interesting. If, I, uh, if you remember, Jesus often did that as well, didn't he? When people would ask him pointed questions, he would ask them questions. Sometimes that reveals more truth than answering a question directly. 
excuse me, Job realizes his fault, and he says he will repent. Now, uh, this repenting of Job may seem strange to us. Isn't it Job that lost his family? Isn't it Job that lost his, his wealth and his cattle and his servants and his position in the community? Why should he repent? Well, if you remember back at the beginning, it said Job didn't curse the Lord with his mouth. But we see throughout the whole uh, dialogues of, of the middle part of Job that he did sin against God with his heart. He didn't, uh, he didn't necessarily uh, call God uh, out uh, to his face and, and call him a liar or say that he hated God or blaspheme. But what he did was he questioned God's motives and he put himself in a position to be a judge of the God of the universe. Always a dangerous position when we take that. The next image, I think, is a special one because after uh, God basically gives uh, Job a, a complete uh, theological beatdown, God turns his attention to the three friends. And this is what he says to the three friends of Job who caused so much turmoil and were very bad friends, if we're really honest. This is what God says to uh, Eliphaz, the oldest of the three. He says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. When Job repented and said he didn't understand all of God's ways, God says, So now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant, servant Job has. And in this picture you see Job offering the burnt sacrifice, praying for his wife and for the three friends. How ironic that it was the friends who came to comfort Job originally in his misery, and it was then in the end Job who had to pray for the three friends so that God would not punish them for being such troublemakers and poor comforters. The last image that I'll show you... Uh, comes from the epilogue, the, the very end of the book of Job in chapter 42. And I'm going to read you this passage from chapter 42, uh, verse 12. It says, Finally, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of his first daughter Jemimiah, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapach. And in all the land, there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. That's the end of the story, the narrative. Um, and it's confusing uh, because... Uh, obviously the new family, the new children, and the, and the new property, and it doesn't take away the loss of the first. So anyone who uh, commentates on Job and says, oh, well, he got more cattle and more camels and more oxen, uh, and he got new kids, so everything is, is good, right? Well, any of us who have lost a friend or family member know that nothing can replace someone loved that's been lost. And that's not the point of this. The point of this is that the Lord goal for Job all along was blessing. The goal for Job all along through the trials and the tribulations was not to push Job to ultimate despair and then leave him to die in misery, alone and at a loss and covered in boils and, and poor. In the end, God gave Job blessing because 
not because of how good Job was. He failed in many ways, but because of how good God is. And it's a complicated riddle, and I'm going to try to unpack it now. Three questions that arise as we come through this story. What's the power that Satan has in the world? Why would God allow him to work evil amongst us? Secondly, uh, what is God's justice all about? How does divine justice work? And lastly, what is our role or what is the role of people in comforting those who are afflicted? Well, we know from both the Old and New Testament that Satan's role in the earth, okay, uh, Satan's role in the earth is to cause destruction, to lie and to kill and to um, to create disruption. And we see that throughout the Old and New Testament and we see it in the life of Job. When Satan came to God and said that um, Job's worship was basically selfish, he was testing the idea that people could love uh, God and be faithful without reward. And then God knew that he knew Job's heart, and he knew that Job's righteousness could withstand these attacks. So in this way, God allows Satan, who Jesus calls the ruler of the world and in uh, John 12, some power to afflict Job's life, though never total control. The pastor John Piper describes Satan's power in the world like this. He says, God has ordained that Satan have a long leash with God holding on to it because he knows that when we walk in and out of temptations, struggling both the physical and moral effects that they bring, more of God's glory will shine in that battle than if God were just to destroy Satan easily. There will be evidence of God's patience with us and of his mercy towards us as we struggle with sin. And there will be evidence of, this, of his sustaining grace as we go through horrific physical suffering that Satan was the immediate cause of. When we love Jesus in spite of Satan's torments and through them, his glory shines most brightly rather than we have life made easier for us and by what, um, as in when Satan would be removed from our experience. The idea is that through fire, through struggle, through suffering, we can learn much about ourselves and we can have the opportunity to show God faithful as we have been singing about today, despite the storm and the wind and the loss and the suffering. Secondly, what is the true nature of God's justice or divine justice? Or in other words, why do the wicked prosper and why do the innocent suffer? One of the key arguments when Elihu, the young man who appeared later in the story, approaches, one of his key arguments that he makes is that God is always just in what he does, that he cannot do evil or wrong and he cannot change his ways. God is not influenced by power or money or property like humans are. Therefore, what incentive would there be for him to be unjust or unfair? And this principle is the cornerstone of Christian and Jewish faith, that God doesn't change over time. Because if he does, then any promises he made in the past or any uh, uh, laws that he set down would be void. God doesn't change uh, with the shifting shadows, the scripture says. Um, As we have seen in in Job, receiving affliction and suffering out of proportion with sins is possible. Think about that for a second. Job didn't sin, and yet he suffered. What's the reason for this? Well... God may choose for a while to do nothing about sin and to remain silent 
to Job and others' pleas for justice. Yet he is, as the sovereign ruler over man and nations alike, will see that a godless person does not continue infinitely or triumph endlessly. Job might not have seen God when he wanted to see God, but ultimately he would. I wonder how different Job's reaction to his suffering might have been if he had been able to see past his pain to the promises that awaited him at the end of his life. I don't know for sure, but I wonder about that. I wonder if he could have envisioned the restoration he would experience if it would have changed the way he experienced or the way that he discussed God and his suffering with his friends. Secondly, uh, when it comes to suffering, I just wanted to mention one last thing. Sometimes righteous people and innocent people suffer. I think we see it in the news every day. I think we see it in our city. I think we see it in our own lives. And it's very difficult to understand why. And I'm not going to try to offer you a, a perfect explanation for that because as we learn from Job, there's trouble in trying to explain why every single bad thing happens because we don't have the perspective that God has. And when we try to put ourselves in that position, we do wrong just like Job's friends did. But I do think that suffering, whether it be on innocence or people who are guilty of sin, can do three things. It can push them towards repentance, both of large or small sins. It can help them to grow in faith or to encounter God. And it can inspire the others that see them in their endurance through their testing. I think that's what we can learn from Job's case. Remember, God didn't give Job an answer for his suffering when he asked for it. But Job persevered in faith. The third question we encounter, how do we care for those who are suffering? Well, we can learn how not to care for those who are suffering by looking at Job's friends. One commentator called them a guidebook for being poor spiritual counselors. When a man is in despair, his friends ought to be loyal. Job, in his pain, had not turned from fearing God, but even if he had, he would have still needed companionship, friendship, and comfort. But instead, Job's friends were accusatory, aggressive, argumentative, and they sought to solve Job's problem rather than love him in spite of his circumstances. Now, I know that uh, as a husband, this was something I could never have learned before I got married, but it's something that I learned very quickly after I got married. If my wife is upset or hurting or frustrated or annoyed or she's just having a bad day, I usually cannot fix that. But what I can do is offer my support, my love, my care, my prayers, my friendship, and if, and if I'm lucky, a few laughs. Sometimes that's the best thing I can do. And I think in some ways, that's probably what Job needed more than these friends to show up and start wagging their fingers, both of them, and telling Job all of the reasons he was suffering and all of the ways he had gone wrong. Throughout the speeches of Job's friends, they remained adamant about their theological position. They knew they were right. Sinners suffer, the righteous do not. Their view was that the righteous are rewarded and the unrighteous are punished. So Job, having willfully sinned, was in need of repentance. That was their position. Their reasoning was as follows. You sin, you suffer. Therefore, Job's suffering, he's a sinner. But when it comes to suffering, as we've learned from Job, it's not always the result of sin. Sometimes it is. Often it is. But it's not always the case. When it comes to the suffering of others, I'm reminded 
of Paul's message to the Corinthians. At the end of uh, 2 Corinthians, he leaves them with a greeting um, where he says this as an encouragement. Brothers, aim for restoration with one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul's uh, reminder to them was this. Encourage one another. Love one another. Comfort each other in, the, in your times of troubles. So I think to the question, how do we comfort those that are suffering, whether they are Christian brothers and sisters, whether they are refugees who don't share our faith, whether they are neighbors who we know nothing about their faith journey, I think there are some common themes that the uh, Christian theology that Jesus teaches us, that the, the overarching themes of the Bible teach us, and it's this, humility, compassion, kindness. All these principles that show up throughout the Bible, they can never go wrong. I've never heard of anyone being despised for being kind. Kindness, compassion, humility. When we bring those to our friends who are struggling, that are suffering, we do them well. In conclusion, I've learned now that I can't say in conclusion until I'm ready to conclude. And I'm really going to conclude now. In conclusion, the book of Job deals with mankind's most pressing problems, the question of suffering and man's relationship with God. Job's experience illustrates the truth that man's worship of God does not stem necessarily from a business-like contract whereby we earn material rewards from God based on merit. Likewise, man's relationship to God is not a, uh, a judicial arrangement in which he is obligated to reward us every time we do something good. You know, the big question in Job was this. Why could a good man suffer such bad? But do we ever, remind, do we ever think about this as the opposite argument? is why do I get so many good blessings despite all the wrong I've done in my life? That's a common argument that we hear all the time. If there was a God, why would he hurt so many uh, innocent people? But nobody ever says, if there is a God, why does he give so many blessings to so many who ignore him? I think if you're going to make one argument, you have to be willing to cede the other argument as well. Instead, Man is to trust God, worship Him, regardless of his circumstance, and rely on the perfections of his character, even when God's ways are not fully understood. Like a child who often doesn't understand why he can't stay up, or why he can't eat candy all the time, or why he can't go out into the woods uh, on a snowy day with no shoes or hat or gloves, we may not understand the guidance and direction of the Lord. Misfortune does not mean that God has forsaken us. It does mean He has plans that we may know nothing of. A believer's unmerited tragedy may never be fully understood, yet he can realize that God is in charge, which is what Job realized in the whirlwind when God said, where were you? We can put our hope in the fact that God still loves and cares for us, even when we don't understand his complete plan. That is what Job learned, and that is what each of us must learn as well. Think of the sufferings of Christ as we close today. He was betrayed, he was scorned, he was tortured, he was abandoned, and he was led to a brutal death. How similar are the words of Jesus when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To those cries of despair that Job had. Think of your own darkest moments. 
when you have questioned the nature of suffering or pain or loss or abandonment or loneliness or grief in your own life. Think of the moments when you have questioned the reasons that you were born. And remember these comforting words that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. My encouragement for you today is that if you are in the midst of suffering, if you are having a Job year, if 2015 was a time of darkness and despair, remember that there is a great plan that stretches beyond our lives. That's God's promise to us. And that the testing and suffering we are experiencing today is meant to improve us, to give us endurance and hope so that we will finish the race and keep the faith. Let's pray together. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.